Lord, we're about to read your word, so help us be praying to hear your voice in it. Help us to look past some of our own preconceived ideas. We only want to hear what you have to say. Help us to not just be hearers of the word, but Lord, help us to be doers also. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, Genesis 22, let's read together. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the land for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the land for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore. 
And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. And they arose. And they went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. That's God's word. I think if Abraham's story, we looked at that in recent reads, if Abraham's story is summarised by saying it's about a promise made, God came to Abraham and said, listen, I'm going to promise you, I'm going to make a covenant with you, I'm going to enter into an agreement with you, and I'm going to give you a land and children and family and inheritance, I'm going to bless you, If Abraham's story is about a promise made, then I think we could summarise that Isaac's story is about a promise kept. The the overwhelming theme of Isaac's life, as we follow it all the way through the Scriptures from about this point onwards for quite a while through the book of Genesis, time and time again, it's... It's a display of God's providence, the way that God just turns up in life, the way that God supplies needs, how He just keeps keeping on, how He keeps His word, how He keeps involving Himself in Isaac's story all the way through His journey. But this is where it begins. This is where I think it would be good for us to focus. I mean, I think it's good. We can rejoice at the end of the story, can't we? Right? Isaac lives. That's good. A ram is supplied. That's really significant. We get to that. The end of the story is fantastic, but let's be honest. This story raises some difficult issues, doesn't it? I mean, it's kind of disturbing if we're really honest with each other. I mean, what does it mean? Really? God wants Abraham to kill his son just to prove how much he loves him? Really? And then surprisingly, Abraham says, I'll do it. Abraham agrees. Does it mean that God supports child sacrifice? I mean, we should... Read this story, I think the way that it sets up and and moves through the story, if the angel of the Lord had not intervened at that crucial moment, I think Abraham would have gone through with this. It's how it reads. In fact, it's how God um, commends even Abraham. He says, Abraham, I know that you've not withheld your son. That's disturbing, right? You're allowed to agree with that. I find it disturbing. It's hard. There's some hard stuff that the scriptures have to try and grapple with. But I want to walk through this journey, this three-day journey that Abram goes on with his son Isaac and two servants of the household, and they journey from Beersheba in the south towards a mountain that Abraham didn't even know existed. God just said, I want you to travel to the place that I'll show you, and I'll show you when you get there. 
somewhere on that three-day journey, it seems that God must have told Abram because on the third day in the morning, he lifts up his eyes and he sees a mountain in the distance and he says, there's the place. Okay, the two servants, you stay here with the donkey, the boy and I are going to go. Let's walk through this journey a bit and I want to make some observations as we go, which I think are going to help us reveal God's heart in this and his purposes towards the gospel, which is good news. Because let me tell you, if we have a God who supports child sacrifice, this is not good news. I think we're going to see something, I think, significant as we, as we go. Alright, let's start at the beginning. Genesis 22, verse 1. Really important word in that first sentence. After these things, God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. Here's my first observation that is if you're a note-taking person. This was always a test and never an intent. This was always a test that God was providing and not an intent. And so we see... Verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, and he said, here I am. We're going to see that little interplay all the way through this story. Abraham, here I am. Father, here I am. There's this interplay of relationship all the way through this story. Abraham's life and also Isaac's were part of the foundations of Israel's existence. Generations later, 14 generations later, 20 generations later, the Israelites, the Jewish people, were still, they were still tracing their heritage and their lineage and their, um, who they were as an identity. They were still tracing all that way back and they were saying, our father Abraham. And they will refer to God all the way through the generations, even to this very day, thousands of years later. And they will pray to the, the God of our father Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the three foundational generations of the nation's existence. So Abraham's life and Isaac's life are a part of the foundations of Israel's story. God was establishing in these generations, in this story, He was establishing for all time, in full view of all of His chosen people, that He is God and that He is faithful. He was also establishing that righteousness would come through faith in God, a God who always keeps His word. This test that we read about in Genesis 22 is as much for us as it was for Abraham. He wasn't just seeing how serious Abraham was. He, he wasn't just sort of saying, well, I wonder if Abraham really is serious. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push him on this matter. I'm just going to test him. This test is as much a test of God's character so that we can see this is what our God is like. Just as, in the same way, God brought His people out of Egypt generations later after this story. 
In the same way that God brought his people out of slavery. And do you remember how he did that out of Egypt? They'd been in slavery for 400 years. Multiple generations born into slavery. And they were crying out for deliverance. And God raised up a man, Moses. Remember that? And um, a whole series of different things happened. Eventually Moses finds himself back in Egypt again. And standing before Pharaoh and he says, God has sent me to tell you this message. Let my people go. Abraham says, uh, no, the, the Pharaoh says, no, no chance. No way. And so there's um, plagues and devastation. And Pharaoh's hard heart continues to harden. And he says, no, I'm not letting your people go. And eventually it comes to the very last plague. And God warns Moses, and Moses tells the people, and he says this very important thing, right? The destroyer is coming. The angel of the Lord. The firstborn of every generation of life. But here's how you stay safe. Take a lamb, right? A spotless lamb, he says. And and sacrifice it and take some of its blood and paint it onto your door frames. Stay inside the house. And when the destroyer comes, he will see the blood and he will pass over your house and you will be safe. Even today, Jewish people all over the world once a year gather together with their families and they eat a sacrificial meal symbolic of that night. And they celebrate the Passover. Jesus celebrated the Passover just before he went to the cross. He gathered with his nearest friends and family and he took a lamb and they ate it together. They remembered God's deliverance. God acts in foundational ways in these stories in Genesis which teach us what God is going to be like throughout all the story of the Bible. And that's what he's doing in Genesis 22 as well. He's showing us in this test what he's like, how he acts, how we should know him, how we should think about him, how we should expect him to be like all throughout even our time and our lifestyle thousands of years later. This test in Genesis 22 would form a foundational part of our understanding of God's sacrifice of His Son, even when we come into the New Testament. I think it's really interesting that that the place that God tells Abraham to travel to, he's living in a place right at the very south of the country, almost into the borderlands of Egypt, and it's a place called Beersheba. That's where he's settled. He's got his tent there, his family there, his flocks there, and he's like, this is home for me. And so we get this little, um, we pick it up in verse 2, where God says, All right, I want you to take your son, Abraham. Remember, this is the son of promise that he's waited 24, 25 years to come true. The, the son of a miracle. 99 years old, his wife was 89 years old, and she had been barren all her life, and and eventually, under God's promise, she bears a son. Her only son. 
Take your son, Abraham, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. I was thinking that Moriah, like the... Yeah, what's, what's his name? Tolkien. In the, uh, the land of Moriah. It's not. The land of Moriah, something like that. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham does, right? He goes, saddles the donkey, gets the wood, takes the fire, the, the knife, the servants, and they travel three days. It's interesting that God has somewhere very specific in mind that it should take place. Why travel? I mean, we know that he saw the place on the beginning of the third day. But the morning of the third day, they saw this place. Then they left the donkeys, and then we don't even know how far further they travelled. Probably still quite some distance. But God had somewhere very specific in mind that this test should take place. Which is interesting. So I think, well, if it was just about whether or not Abel was willing to give Isaac up, could he just done that be a sheep on? Couldn't he have done that in the desert somewhere? Couldn't he have done that on the, on the banks of the Dead Sea? He wasn't too far from there. Why, why this place? We know that it was a specific place. Because on the third day, Abraham recognized it. He, he looked up and he said, there's the place. Right? You guys stay here, I'm going to take Isaac with me. It was a mountain that he could see. Fourteen generations later, after this event, fourteen generations later, King David, the great King David, King David, it says that he purchased a piece of land from a farmer on the top of Mount Moriah. And was right near a city, and the city's name was Jabus. J-E-V-U-S. Jabus. David had just conquered Jabus, this city. It was, it was, um, he pretty much conquered everywhere else. But this city was a real stronghold on top of a mountain. And so many people had, had come against it, and they couldn't defeat it. And the people of the city were very proud. And they said, this is our great city. No one's ever going to be able to take over our city. And David did. God's help. And so he'd not long overthrown the city and he'd taken that city by force and he had claimed that city as a city of the Lord. And he changed its name. And he changed the name of that city to Jerusalem. You can go there today. On top of a mountain, Mount Moriah. He, he bought a plot of land on that mountain and on that same plot of land, David's son Solomon would build a temple on that plot of land. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. I'll just read one verse to you. It says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan at Jebusite. Solomon's temple was built on a mountain, Mount Moriah, 
But that temple was eventually destroyed. And on the very same spot, they built another one. Well, that one was destroyed as well. And then it was rebuilt again on the same spot. And generations later, Jesus would stand in that very same spot. Jesus would face the wrath of a a whole generation who scorned him on that spot. On that spot, when Jesus hung on a tree and died, a, a curtain tore from top to bottom, opening up access into a place in the temple called the Holy of Holies, where no man, apart from the great high priest, once a year, and only by the sacrifice and ceremonial cleansing could he enter into there. But nobody else could. That was the holy presence of God. And the temple that divided it tore in two on that spot, on Mount Moriah. So let's back up a whole bunch of generations again and come back to Genesis 22. And God said, for some reason, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your very only son, the son whom you love, and I want you to take him to a place that I will show you. And he traveled to the country of Moriah and he stood on top of the mountain and he laid out an altar and he looked to sacrifice his son. On a place that generations later, Jesus would do the same for us. This was a test, not just of Abraham's love or Abraham's passion or Abraham's commitment. This was a test of God's character for us. There was no temple there then when Abraham arrived on top of that mountain. No city there then. Just a, a mountain. A lonely place that Abraham travelled to with his son. I can't imagine what it must have been like for a young Isaac to walk carrying the gear and wondering, this seems odd. I mean, we know it does, right? Because at some point in time, Isaac starts to sort of say, Dad, here I am, son. We've got the wood. We've got the fire. You've got the knife. Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb, right? Abram's Abram's response is deeply faith-filled. God will provide the lamb. Now, Abram knows, right? God said, Abram, you take your son and sacrifice your son in that place. And yet Abram still says God will provide the land. It's interesting at the end of this chapter, chapter 22, verse 14, we read it together. When all this story is done and dusted, God, Abraham renames this mountaintop. He, he renames this place and he calls it, the name of the place is called the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. And there's a saying amongst the Jewish people even today. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And on the mount of the Lord it was provided. It was in Genesis 22. And it was on a dark day 
and get something. The Lord provided. This test was a signpost to God's greater providence, God's greater provision, the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So this was always a test. A child's sacrifice was not God's intent, but it was a test of who He is and a signpost for what He will do. I want you to notice the second thing about this story. Abraham was 100% obedient to God's voice, but 100% confident in God. He was 100% obedient. When God says to him at the beginning of the story, Abraham, I want you to take your son. Look, let's be honest. Any dad, any mum, for God to, to interrupt your sleep at night and tell you something like that, I bet you did not go back to sleep that night. Right? The wrestling within, the, the, the questions, the fear, but, but what we know is that when he got up in the morning, verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning, he summoned his donkey and he got his things together and he said, we're going. He's 100% obedient, but 100% confident with God. So in verse 5, there's a really interesting interplay. Three days of travel have gone past. They see the place that they're going to go to. Abraham turns to his young men, the young servants of the household, and he says this to them. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there to worship and come back to you. I and the boy will go there and worship and come back. Even there, 100% obedient. And we know that he's willing, right? Because when he gets to the mountaintop, he lays the altar down, he puts the wood down, he binds his son, he takes a knife, and if it wasn't for the angel intervening, the knife would have done its work. He's 100% obedient. But right from the outset, he's 100% confident in God because God had already promised him, I'm going to give you a son. And then he give you an inheritance. And then he give you this blessing. And so somewhere in the midst of all of that wrestling, Abram's holding on to, I know my God. I know my God. This doesn't make sense, but I know my God. My son and I will go and worship and we will come back. And even as they're walking up the mountain, and Abram's and, and Isaac saying, Dad, where's the lamb? Abram's saying, Son, God will find. God will provide. I bet you see, God, I don't know how you're going to do this. I don't know what you're going to do. I'm willing to obey, but I trust you. We will go, he says, but we will come back. Abraham was committed to seeing this through, 100%. Abraham was willing to be obedient to God's voice, 100%. But he also, 100%, expected to walk back down the mountain with his son. It's an important lesson that we need to grasp a hold of. We are often going to face circumstances in this life where we can see no pathway forward. That will happen time and time again, where we look at what's in front of us and we think, I cannot see a path forward. I cannot see how God could show up here. There is no way that this is going to work out. There's no way that this should work out. And yet even then, even weak and feeble faith directed towards a powerful God 
Well, that's amazing. To know that I can't see how this could possibly work out. I cannot see how this could possibly move forward. And yet I know my God. And that's whose faith Abraham's was, was pointed towards. His faith was pointed towards a powerful God. A God of the impossible. And Abraham experienced that. When he had no son and, and God said, I'm going to give you a son, he was like, how can that be possible? And God says, watch me. God will provide himself the land for a burnt offering, my son. And, and here's where we come to the real depth of this illustration for us, the story for us. This is where we meet a very important truth don't, don't get frightened by it because you think it's some type of doctrinal statement. But we are introduced to substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary, meaning someone takes the place. Atonement, meaning my sin is dealt with. And we see it clearly here. They came to the place in verse 9, which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, laid him on the, on the wood. And then Abram reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Here I am. I'm so glad you turned up. Don't lay your hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. And know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abram lifted up his eyes, and he sees there behind him a ram, a male lamb, caught in a thicket, caught in some thorns maybe, by its horns, and Abraham went and took that ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And that's why Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. I think Genesis 22 holds one of the most vivid pictures of Christ's atonement for our sins. Seen probably in any narrative book of the Old Testament. The, the death was intended for Isaac, right? That's the whole point of the story. Isaac was the one who was supposed to have been sacrificed. Isaac was the one who was supposed to have been in that place. But instead, his death was absorbed by a substitute. A, a, a ram, a, a male lamb taken and laid in his place. Suffering the death that was supposed to have been his. Sacrificed in the place of Isaac. God provided a substitute. And that's what the doctrine of substitutionary atonement is about. It refers to the doctrine, the truth of God's word, that Christ died on a cross as a substitute for sinners. Because the reality is that our sin, our rebellion against God, it is already signed, sealed, and delivered 
We deserve death for that. Our place was to receive the wrath of God that should fall on every person who rebels against Him. We should have experienced what it meant to be separated from God and experienced the punishment for our sin. And that was our place. In every way, morally, ethically, legally, you and I should be the one who hung on a cross that day. But they were in a place on the mountain where God provides. They were in a they were in a place where the God that we read about in Genesis 22 was the same God that we read about in the Gospels. It's the same God that we read about and know about today. The God who saw our sin, saw our death, saw our rebellion, and still provides a substitute. So Jesus comes like the lamb in Genesis 22 and he bears the sin. He bears the punishment. He takes the sacrifice that I should have had, that you should have had. He hangs in our place. He dies our death. He receives the wrath that we deserve. He bore that punishment. There was full payment for sin. It satisfied God's wrath against sinners. And more than that, because Christ was a righteous man, a good man, Jesus lived perfectly before man and before God, His righteousness, His goodness, His right standing with God, He now gives us a gift to those who receive His sacrifice. So not only does he bear my sin, he then gives me his righteousness. That's the basis of the good news of the gospel. It's it's the great exchange. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, Paul says, for our sake, he's talking about Jesus, he says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. The one that knew no sin became sin for us. He took our place and gave us his righteousness. Those beautiful verses from Ephesians 2. For by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one can boast. We can't boast. This is Jesus who stood in our place. There's a little poem that I was reading through the week. And um, I'll read out just a, a couple of stanzas for you before we move into communion shortly. To remind us of the fact that here in Genesis 22, as Abram and Isaac are walking up the mountain, Abram, yes, is 100% obedient. He knows this is about God's character and who he is. So we trust him. And he sees the provision of God. He sees how God steps in and becomes a substitute for us. And that's what the table helps us remember week in and week out. It's just bread. Probably got it on the day old. Table, I don't know. 
doesn't matter if it's particularly fresh or stale or been in the freezer for a week. It's just bread. I can guarantee you that the stuff in the cups there is it's just juice. But what they represent is not just anything. It's not something unimportant. That bread, when it's broken, and you tear that piece of bread off, and when you take that cup and you drink it, we recall our substitute. We, we recall and remind, not only ourselves, but we're reminding one another as we do this together. We walk forward, usually, and sometimes we pass it around, but we often walk forward together as a church and come and stand around the tables. And when you take the bread and when you take the cup, it's not only a reminder for you, but it's a witness for those watching. You're reminding your brothers and sisters here, listen, you have a substitute. I have a substitute. Jesus stood in my place and we're remembering Him today. So let me read this little poem out. It says, This is my status and these are my flaws. Apart from Christ Jesus and His saving cause, I carry sin's guilt and am gripped by sin's power, held fast to its various lusts every hour. Deserving of flames, both within and without, and sliding toward hell as I toss all about. Too reprobate even to play a small part in queering my record or changing my heart. To pacify wrath and be worthy of grace. To make myself lovely and win God's embrace. Completely condemned by God's law in its whole. I've nothing to offer to ransom my soul. But wonder of wonders, so great to behold. My God chose to save me with methods so bold. What I could not render, God fully has done. And doing, He rendered it all through His Son. He sent Christ to die on the cross for my sin, to suffer my anguish, my pardon to Him. That's what we remember when we come. Maybe you've looked at Abraham in the past as just some great example of faith. Good, he is. <laughs> you should, the Bible does that. But, but does that mean too that we should follow his example? Yes, God, I'll give you everything. And prove it, I'll even give you my children. Should we say that? Should we be willing to follow Abraham's example and sacrifice even our beloved kids to prove just how dedicated we are to God? You probably know this verse. It's well loved. Kuron has shelves full of pencils and pens and mugs with this verse printed on it. Micah 6 and 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? Love kindness and walk humbly with our God. We love that verse, right? Do you know the verse that comes before it? We all know Micah 6 8. We know Micah 6 7. Let me read it. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? 
will the Lord be pleased with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You don't need to sacrifice your son to prove anything to God. He's already made all the sacrifices required. What does he require of you now? Do justice. Love kindness. And walk humbly with your God. Do you know what that means? We look to the land that was slain. We don't place any merit on our own ability to prove anything to God, to impress God in any way, or to atone for our own sin in any way. No, we walk humbly with our God. And we do that as we simply bow before Him and we say, God, You have sacrificed all for me. You have stood in my place. Lord Jesus, I surrender my life to the one who took my place. That's what God requires of us today. That's why for all eternity in this life and the life to come, we will sing a song that they sang in Revelation chapter 5. We won't read it now for time's sake. But they sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was what? Slain. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's the point. That's where we come on our knees before Him. And then we walk back down the mountain. Remember how Abraham said, Hey, you guys, listen here. You wait. My son and I are going there to worship, but we will come back. God has provided the land. Let's pray. Father, as we walk forward very shortly and we take these emblems, bread and juice, are simple elements, a part of everyday meals, and yet they point us to you, a greater reality. Our substitute, the one who took our place, who satisfied the wrath of God that was pointed towards us, and has now given us his right standing with you. And so, Lord Jesus, we look to you, the Lamb that was slain, and we say, Worthy, worthy, worthy. And we look to the Lamb. We thank you for this story and the faithfulness of Abraham, but we thank you that it points us to the character of who you are and what you have done. Lord, transform our hearts because of what we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.